This episode was recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labor of writers and actors, this film wouldn't exist. We stand in solidarity with those striking. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And today we are bringing to you some 1980s cheeseball horror stuff, I guess in... (laughs) I was going to say in memory of, no, I guess for some of you, maybe, but in honor of (laughs) going back to school. Yeah. So we're bringing to you an amazing 80s trope that happened. There were so many of them, the back to school situation. And this one is Slaughter High. Yeah. 1983, right? uh, 86. 86. Yeah. Whatever. What is time? As two childless people, (laughs) you know, this is how we celebrate back to school as opposed to, you know... The, yes, granted, adorable pictures of y'all with kids and grandkids with their little school, you know, signs and whatever. Like, cool, keep keep doing that. Uh, we do not do that unless we do it with our animals. So we're going to talk about a back-to-school horror film instead. It's how <laughs> yeah. I celebrate this time of year. I also celebrate by the school supplies being forced to the forefront of the stores. And then, of course, being a Virgo, I want to go and shop for office supplies, notebooks. Oh, yeah pens things like that i'm like do i need to have 10 two pocket folders with prongs in the center yeah no i don't but i'm gonna look at them oh yeah yeah or like planners i'm like is there some new technology and planners that i need to know about right that will help me get my life in order yeah yeah do i need a new planner knowing that i can barely keep up with the nice automated things that my iphone does for me yes Actually, Juliet can be on to Google Calendar, and I've never looked back. It's great. I love it. I used to keep a paper, like one of those tiny little paper calendars. I used to keep one of those in my bag at all times. I mean, aesthetically, I love the idea of having a paper planner slash calendar. I almost purchased one at the beginning of the calendar year. There's one in particular that I've almost bought like three different years. And then I realized that I'm just going to disappoint myself when I immediately stop using it or like don't have it like looking perfect and like how do people bullet journal like oh my god I have too much anxiety for stuff like that especially because you're like okay I've got three quarters of this page perfectly bulleted everything looks gorgeous and then you mess up the whole thing is ruined and you just have to throw it in the trash or light it on fire right because if you look at it again you'll just have that fresh wave of disappointment yeah all over again yeah You see people, this is what happens when you give Virgos a little bit of leeway when it comes to organizing for themselves. No, Virgos only deserve the most basic, (laughs) the most basic stuff because we cannot be left responsible. We can't be left alone with this stuff. No, we're too obsessed with the perfect is is the enemy of the good. Yes, we are the enemies of ourselves in terms of perfection. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. So bare bones, I can't even use the Google Calendar like color highlighting properly, which is very easy to do. I can't even do that properly. So yeah, 
I'm like, oh, the blue default, that'll be for work. But then green will be for this and orange will be. No, no, it all ends up being blue. I can't, <laughs> I cannot be left to do this on my own. Priorities. I just found out the other day on your phone, you can click and drag over multiple time slots and not just make it an hour every time. So like if you oh. have something from like 1030 to 230, you could just click and drag and it'll block that out automatically versus you having to actually manually do it. Yeah. That's where I'm at with Google Calendar. I mean, that's fair. I can't be left to my own devices with that. I did put our show release schedule in my phone. So now oh, I have it on know. Google Calendar. So there's at least there's that. That's cool. I so like I know that. like every other week <laughs> our episodes come yeah. out. And I don't have to rely on my own brain to do it. Yeah. Because that is the magic of Google Calendar is that I no longer have to rely on my own brain because guess what? Your girl is not going to remember. <laughs> <laughs> For as organized as I want to be. Yeah. I overdo it. It's just a little helper. Yes. Just helps you along the way there. No, it's a crutch now. Like, oh, yeah. My work calendar sinks now into my Google Calendar. And if that didn't happen... I'd never be in any meetings. No, I know. I would not know where to be if not for the Google Calendar. What am I doing today? But none of the people in our uh, in the movie that we're going to talk about actually end up having any of these problems that no. we're ta- discussing. No, they simply show up to a place and chaos ensues. They don't even go to a class in no. this movie at all. No, it's there's not true. even a single class. Yeah, no notebooks, no pens, no nope. paper, no book bags. That's true. There are a few lockers, but I, they don't actually retrieve anything out of these lockers, except I think there might be a yearbook in one of them, but that's it. Yeah, the lockers are only used later as a plot device. <laughs> yeah. Not in service of any sort of study. So Slaughter High is a, a high school revenge movie, which you gotta love. Oh, uh, yeah. So many of these in the 80s. So many high school themed movies in the 80s, which makes sense. I mean, you and I, Juliet, have experience with these high school, like, you know, movies that are set in high school yeah. or set inside actual high schools. Because a high school is an accessible, realistic yeah. place that you can film. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's also, you know, there is that sort of like mythic nostalgia about teenagerhood I think sometimes it is easier to presume the freedom of, you know, even if it's an imagined freedom, like a false freedom of your teenage years and to, you know, sort of set a film, a horror film or an adventure film, you know, especially if we're talking about the 80s in that sort of mythic past of teenagerdom. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because... I think any of us can look at any number of media about high school or teenagers and just stare and be like, what even? That was not at all remotely like my experience. But yet it's become almost a subgenre unto itself, the sort of like high school thing. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, and I need to do some more reading on this, it feels like it was most prevalent in like the 80s into the early 90s. Yeah, I agree with you. So many of the situations that I see, and it's not just high school movies, it's also college movies, yeah. are referencing experiences I never, ever had in my life yeah. in high school or college. 
Now, granted, I didn't go to university. I went to a community college and I lived at home or in my own apartment for the majority of the time. And then when I got my bachelor's, it was all online. So yeah, I missed out on a lot of the like sorority, fraternity, you know, living on campus, dorm room life. I missed out on that. And when I was in high school, I only did half days because I was taking free college courses the rest of the day. Yeah. So and I had a car. I was very autonomous. I had my own job and all that. So, you know, I did not have this like bully hazing kind of experience. I was bullied more in middle school than I was in high school. But I was also scary in high school. So (laughs) I kind of had this like tough girl persona that made it so that people didn't want to mess with me. And also I was gone most of the time. So there really wasn't um, opportunity for that. But a lot of the bullying that you see in especially 80s and 90s movies, and I mean other movies too, a lot of the bullying happens in the gym. Yeah. Like in the locker room, you Mm -hmm. know, like Carrie, I mean, an iconic example of the bullying that happens in the locker room. And I was always really afraid of that. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I just took summer gym. So I never had that situation (laughs) happen to me. I never had like that scary in the gym locker room moment. Yeah, I think, you know, because I went to private school until college and then I didn't live on campus either. I don't want to say that like the sort of like physical, like pranky bullying Mm -hmm. that we see in a lot of like 80s and 90s media and we see in this film. I don't want to say it didn't happen because maybe it did and I was just unaware of it because I was kind of off doing my own little thing. But at my school, at least, it felt like because it was a private school, because discipline was a little stricter or there were different expectations, let's say, bullying didn't manifest like that it was like way more insidious where Mm -hmm. it was like very cruel like under the radar like taunting and harassment and stuff like that because people definitely definitely got bullied at my school I mean like people very close to me got bullied mercilessly in high school but it was not the sort of like oh we're gonna stuff you in a trash can Mm -hmm. or that kind of a thing it was like really just like cruel cruel things about people's appearances and their families and this, that, and the other. And I don't know if that's everybody's experience and filmmakers have just sort of manifested it in, you know, more of this, like, at least back then, like, jokey, fun, like, pranky kind of thing to make it feel more accessible or more comfortable for viewers. But, like, kids are cruel, Mm y'all. Like, let's be real. Yeah. And also, Juliet and I are post- well, I'm a post 9-11 graduate, and we're also post-Columbine kids. Well, Columbine happened when I was in high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, so, it was my freshman year. Yeah. So the world changed after that, Yeah, you know, and public school especially was a lot more sensitive, became more sensitive mm-hmm. at first in a very hardcore and not, um, didn't lend itself to sensitivity in these matters because schools became extremely scared of anything that was different right yeah you know like even a little bit different you dress Mm -hmm. in black you're going to the principal's office you write a scary poem you're going to the principal's office you know you talk about a knife or self-harm you're going to the principal's office and rather than handling that like hey maybe you should talk to a counselor maybe we should have a social worker or a therapist on staff to like 
you know, suss out, is this something that's actually dangerous or is this person asking for help? Rather than doing that, they were like, you're expelled, you're going to out of school suspension or whatever. Mm-hmm. So not handling it with sort of the, the grace and malleability that needs to be there yeah, in determining whether or not these situations are like, is this actually a problem? Or is the student asking for help? Or are they even parroting other media that they're seeing? See, that was a big problem in my school is like, if you liked things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which portrayed teenagers using weapons to fight vampires, you know, or, you know, manga and anime were not as like, broadly culturally accepted in the US when I was in high school, it was definitely still a very like, kind of undergroundy thing Mm -hmm. you know it was it was a sub subculture at that point but you know a lot of especially the anime and manga that was coming out back then you know it was these awesome like kick-ass i'm thinking of like utna for example like these amazing like schoolgirls with swords and stuff like that but there was no like cultural competency with any of that media and so if you were a person reading, you know, a book that had a schoolgirl with a sword on the cover, like, boom, oh, you're fascinated with weapons? Yeah. You might be a problem. Yeah, exactly. So this bullying was definitely not, I don't know, I don't want to say it wasn't taken as seriously, but it seems like the way that it was portrayed in media at the time was that adults did not take bullying seriously. Right. And so filmmakers are portraying, like, look at what happens when you don't deal with bullying in a way that's actually productive. Yeah. And this movie definitely takes the bullying to, like, it's almost comical. Like, it's so cruel, but it's, like, the lengths to which these kids go, like, any one of these series of air quotes pranks that they commit on Marty in the very beginning of this film would be a lot Mm -hmm. in my opinion. But the fact that like it keeps escalating within a span of like, you know, 15 minutes real time, more like five minutes film time is I think simultaneously like really pushing it to an extreme, like, darkly funny like it's funny but it's not like it's funny in that it's so ridiculous Mm -hmm. but it's also very very cruel like they definitely push it to an over-the-top place so that marty's revenge feels warranted Mm -hmm. and feels in a certain regard almost satisfying to a viewer but it's also like oh my gosh like it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it gets to the point where it's like, okay, you brought a whole ass film crew yeah. to do this to this kid. And it's like each thing tops the other. So you have the virgin trope where, you know, you have this virgin and he's like, no, I'm a sex machine, which actually, in my experience, the kids in like band and stuff were the ones that were so super promiscuous. Yeah. So it was kind of funny to me because I was like, <laughs> actually, at my school, that probably would have been true. Like that kid probably was a sex machine. Right. Like he probably, you know, <laughs> like probably had a couple notches in his belt by the time he graduated. But the super hot, uber hot girl is like, oh, no, let's go have sex in the girl's locker room. He's like, I can't go in the girl's locker room. And she's like, no, that it'll be safe. It's fine. And then there's like this escalation of like 
weird condom. Yeah. Um, you know, he's in the shower, he's getting naked. And then not only do they spray him with a fire hose, record the whole thing, poke him with a javelin, electrocute him when he tries to go get a towel. Dump and, his head in the toilet. Yeah. And giving him an upside down swirly all while recording it. Yeah. Like any one of those things is probably enough. Prob- yeah. Probably enough for like this kid to be scarred for life. Yeah. And then it like kind of resolves but it doesn't really resolve because then they give him some kind of like messed up joint, which I'm yeah. like, oh boy, yikes! Yeah. Uh, that like that pop- is poppers in it, uh, something, yeah. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's you know, it's one of those things that like when you watch it now, like I get where again, like where they were coming from in the '80s, but like when you think about just like all of the things about like laced drugs and things like that now which is like a huge problem in our community and contributes to overdose deaths i'm just like like that just makes me like so uncomfortable yeah but again like uh, the filmmakers were not thinking in those terms in the 80s again it was like fun kid prank right and then they mess with his science project which creates this whole series of events do not worry about physics or engineering in this movie just just roll with it, <laughs> which I will talk more about in a little bit. Just go with it. Yeah. It leads to a series of events where there is an explosion and Marty is then doused with slash immersed in acid. Nitric acid. Nitric acid. Yes. Yeah. Just briefly want to mention some of the actors in yeah. the movie. You have probably the biggest profile actor, actress in the movie is Carolyn Monroe, who actually plays Carol, which is kind of funny. Simon Scudmore, he plays Marty. Carmine Yannacone, who plays Skip. Donna Yeager, who plays Stella. Gary Martin, who plays Joe. Billy Hartman plays Frank. Michael Safran plays Ted. John Siegel plays Carl. Kelly Blake Baker plays Nancy. And I'm not even going to read the rest of these people because there are so, too many characters in this movie for what it is. There are a lot. Yeah. It's kind of funny how big the group of um, teenagers who then become adults is. Like normally you would think of like a core group of like five. This is more like 10. Yeah. I actually wrote that down as a note. I was like for a movie about so many friends getting back together because like this bad thing happens to Marty and then the rest of the movie is couched in. This is a 10 years later, you know, going back for your 10 year reunion situation. And for a, a friend group that's this big, they don't do a really good job of giving equitable like story time to the friends right and also making them different enough that they're recognizable in a movie like this with so many people you're basically like well they're just cannon fodder like they're just there to die oh i think that's exactly what they were there for i think the number of people in the group was really crafted around the kills that they wanted to create which the effects are really really well done um they're great just classic 80s gore effects, uh, really creative, you know, kills and things like that. But I think the number of people was strictly predicated on, okay, we want to do this, 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 and this. So we need that many people in the group to make that happen. And that's fair. I mean, look at Friday the 13th. The first Friday the 13th, there's a mess of kids. Oh, yeah. Most of them are just there to be murdered. So it's fine. That's a classic 80s movie thing is like, 
they didn't really care about getting a story in for all of these people. Like, we don't really know what happened to them in the 10 years since. The only two people that we really ever get any info on is Marty and Carol. Yeah. They're the only ones that we ever get any backstory on. Yeah. And other than that, it's like, you know that a couple of them are married, but apparently not very happily based off of things that happen later. And then the rest of them is like, oh, well, they're all getting murdered. So yeah, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And this movie's only 90 minutes long. So it's not like we really get a lot of uh, legitimate, careful description of any of them. Yeah. Not that we need it because they're really, they're just cannon fodder. Yeah. For Marty's um, contrived experiment slash murder situations. I want to know how much time Marty spent setting all that up because, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's like industrial level it is yeah like bad stuff happening yeah i do want to say that this movie starts out with full frontal male nudity which i was very surprised by yeah not a thing that you even see in movies nowadays it's true yeah it's interesting full frontal male nudity still by and large seems relegated to you know things that are on the artsier side Mm -hmm. of the genre for sure and is typically done to shock, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I mean, that's kind of the thing with male nudity. And we're talking cis male nudity versus cis female nudity in horror in particular. But I would say in other genres of film too, the kind of way it always seems to go is that female nudity is there to titillate male nudity is there to shock and this film definitely falls into that well another movie that hopefully we'll be able to cover later on that came out the same year as this one that features full frontal male nudity is sleepaway camp and that movie was groundbreaking yes because not only is a full frontal you know i'm saying quote-unquote male nudity it was trans female nudity so like groundbreaking in that regard and it just wasn't it's still not something that you see even in horror flicks which have a tendency to be like on the forefront of showing these things you still don't see that everyone i'm coming up with right now is like an ari aster movie or something that is along those same lines yep. I'm like oh yeah it was there in hereditary and midsummer and yeah. you know <laughs> lars von trier yeah exactly antichrist uh-huh robert eggers yeah. I don't know if it's just studios shying away from that. I don't know. I mean, I think it is sort of this modern view of bodies and sexuality and the patriarchy at play. Because I feel like the portrayal of the male-coded body, the, the cis male body, it's steeped in all of this like patriarchal bullshit of like, well women we still shouldn't portray anything that might arouse women you know men it's fine titillate them you know and there's complicated layers there but if you show a male body what if a dude sees it and he's turned on Uh (laughs) uh-oh avoid at all costs that's fair which is you know toxic masculinity it's the patriarchy it's homophobic it's also like total erasure of you know queer women's experiences and on and on and on and on. But I think that's the reason is all of that stuff, that systemic stuff 
is still kind of lingering and preventing, you know, most filmmakers, you know, mass market filmmakers from making those choices. Although I haven't seen this movie, I guess we could say Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer has full frontal cis male nudity. Oh, I have not seen it. But I mean, that was something that was talked about in that film. Like that's how much it's a situation where people are still talking about this. Yeah. So I did also want to say that Carolyn Monroe playing Carol, clearly not a high schooler. Oh, no. Yeah, no, no. Huge horror actress, though. She's in tons of stuff. Not only was she in Casino Royale, the original, yep. she was also in Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. She's um, a big hammer person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dracula, AD 1972. Um, she was in Dr. Fibes. Yep. And Rises Again. Yes. Just so many. The Last Horror Film, Don't Open Till Christmas, Faceless, The Black Cat. It just goes on. Later movies... Like movies that were more recently made, she was in a movie called The Pocket Film of Superstitions Mm. um, that is currently being worked right now. The Haunting of Margam Castle, House of the Gorgon, Vampires with a Y, Crying Wolf 3D. So like the list goes on. She's even still working now as an actress in the horror genre. So very cool. But in real life, she was 35 when this movie was made and she's portraying a high schooler. And then I'm assuming a 28 year old. Yeah. 27, 28 year old. Yeah, not a high schooler. Yeah, definitely not. We were both like, um, maybe she goes to the school as a teacher. Right. <laughs> she's definitely not a high schooler. Yeah. But I mean, not to say that she's like old looking. It's more like she's very mature. Oh, yeah. And nobody looked that put together when when no. I was in school. Oh, definitely not. Nowadays, either. like kids have YouTube to teach them how to put on makeup. Yeah. Back in the day, you had your, in my case, your cigarette mom who'd like, (laughs) you know, light up the eyeliner with a lighter before she put it on. And she always had, she always put her blush on the exact same way. So the blush brush was like smooshed. Oh, yeah, yeah, You know, always wore the same shade of eyeshadow. That was it. Never wore mascara, only used the eyeliner on the bottom lid. Oh. She was one of those moms. Okay. That's an aesthetic choice. Yeah. Yeah. And like powder all over, no contour, no highlight. Uh-huh. We didn't know what contouring and highlight yeah, was. Contouring did not exist. And I think contouring was invented in like 2010 or something. <laughs> yeah. Like that wasn't a thing that people thought about back yeah. in the day. They weren't highlighting like the tip of their nose. They weren't shaping. I mean, I truly believe that the reason that contouring is like a thing now, like, yes, professional makeup artists, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's actually drag performers that have brought a lot of, you know, the sort of modern, like, very, like, chic contoured looks. RuPaul's Drag Race, I think, is responsible for so much of the sort of mass interest in that and people, like, making these videos to, you know, emulate those looks or or create those, like, amazingly, like, shadowy kind of situations. Yeah. It's hilarious that drag queens are dragging me kicking and screaming into being able to apply makeup properly because (laughs) otherwise your girl's just doing the 1992 blue eyeshadow all the way up to the eyebrow uh (laughs) no blending because what is blending i can't even do it now lip gloss yeah lip liner 
I'm hopeless when it comes to makeup. I'm not doing makeup. <laughs> I figured out blush in 2018. That was a big achievement. <laughs> I'm still not there. I'm like foundation intimidates me so hard that I don't even wear foundation. Yeah. I'm just like, well, that's yeah. I'm just not going to. And I yeah. have rosacea really bad on one side of my face. And I'm just like, well, that's just a feature. Yeah. That's yeah. just how it's going to be. I think it's fine. I use moisturizer and that is an achievement. Earlier this year, I went to my esthetician. I was like, please help me. (laughs) And she was like, okay, all you got to do is like wash your face and put on moisturizer. And I was like, I can manage that three days out of seven. Yeah. How's that? That's all I can offer you. (laughs) (laughs) It it is helping. Wash your face, guys. That's going to help your life. Yeah. Just wash your face (laughs) in general. But Um, don't wash your face or your body in a bathroom (laughs) in an abandoned school building. Oh, boy. Yeah. So one of our characters, after the first or second murder. It's after the first one, because that dude's guts explode. He gets poisoned and his guts explode and it covers. Well, the the first one in front of them. Oh, yeah. Because the janitor. Right, right, right. Sigh. More on that in a minute. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I have feelings about that. But after our stomach explosion, maybe due to Pop Rocks and Coke, maybe not, (laughs) one of our characters gets splattered with blood and opts to take a bath in the abandoned school building. And I just... Choices, people. It's been abandoned for five years. Yeah. No. Do you think the water is on? The water's not on. The water's probably not on. I mean, Marty rigged that up. Right. That was Marty. But also, who would think that? Like, oh, I'm covered in blood. Rather than just, like, getting towels or finding paper, toilet paper or something and wiping it off, she's like, I'm going to strip down all the way and get in the bathtub. The producer and director were probably like, we want a naked girl to get eaten up by acid in the tub. Oh, yeah. Again, it's all in service to the effects. Which some movies are like that. Yeah, that's true. Great effect. I truly love the time lapse like melting scenes that we see in 80s movies they're legit my favorite so good i love them yeah sometimes you have the reverse melt you know where it's like where they're growing skin i think there's a really good one in either the first or the second critters movie where the aliens are turning into humans yeah they do a reverse effect when they're like growing the flesh over them Love it so much. That's one of my favorite scenes. It's just like chef's kiss. Anytime I see that, the paper mache, sometimes I go that route rather than using latex. They use like layers of paper mache and they just speed it up. Yeah. It's like stop motion. This effect is really good. And then eventually she's just bones in the tub. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's what you get. Yeah. For taking a bath in an abandoned building. Yeesh. Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. What the heck? But also, I mean, like. The way Marty rigged up that acid, like what? I mean, sir. I mean, are good you for him. Building engineer. <laughs> <laughs> good for him for being able to figure that out. Yeah. To like pump nitric acid or whatever. It's some sort of brown liquid. Who yeah. knows? I'm not a chemist. Don't come at me. <laughs> I don't know what liquids are. Actually, I think that most acids are like clear anyways, which makes it even more dangerous. But right. they probably wanted to make it brown because they're like, look, it's it's, it's acid. Lethal. Yeah, it's going to be bad for you. I feel like that's one of those things that like, yeah, acid is normally clear. But in my mind, because of movies and things, I always picture it as being like brown and sizzly and all of that. Like green or green reanimator style. Yep. Yeah, that's fair. 
I also want to know what kind of poison makes your guts explode like that. Yeah, I have questions. <laughs> the first kill that they all see, the guy like drinks some poison and his guts like swell up and explode. I was like, I wonder what kind of poison makes that happen. Because not only did they swell up, like his intestines come out and then they explode. Right. Yeah. So it's like a, a multi-step process. It's very specific. It, it looks like something's about to burst out. Oh, yeah. It's like alien-esque right yeah but nothing explodes it just blows up and then gets the one lady who ends up getting burned up in the tub just gets blood all over her Mm -hmm. pop rocks and coke though don't do it y'all yeah don't don't even try because this is what's going to happen to you yeah so let's talk about the first kill in the movie that we actually get to see our you know motley band of characters don't get to see it at least not at first is actually digby who's played by john clark he's the janitorial person at the school who was also at the school and actually discovered the original which now that i'm thinking about it critically we should talk about that too but digby is murdered first and he's like hung up on one of the hooks on the doors by marty the killer So before we get into, I think, what we were originally going to talk about, let me just bring up the fact that in this sequence, Marty is killing the dude who was the only reason that the bullying activity that was happening to him even got discovered in the first place. Right. So why would you want to kill him? And also, why is he still caretaking five years after this place is closed down? Yeah. And not doing a good job, by the way. Yeah. Sorry, (laughs) Sorry, Digby, but... Yeah, it's awful. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if maybe we are supposed to understand that, like, Digby could have done more to stop the bullying, Mm -hmm. could have, rather than running to the coach, just intervened in the moment he saw it. Because you do, in that beginning sequence, you see him walk down the hall, peek in the window, Mm -hmm observe what's happening and then he walks away and what you're not sure of until we get to kind of the next progression in that scene is did he just ignore it Mm -hmm. or did he go tell somebody and we do find out that he did go tell somebody so i don't know if it's supposed to be you know one of these things like well he could have done more to help prevent this from happening that's kind of what i'm choosing to believe okay Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And I think later it becomes irrelevant anyways. But yeah, but I mean, also, this is a horror movie and I'm trying to ascribe some sort of logic to the killer. And you can't always do that. Yeah. It's like, well, he was attached, so he's got to go. Yeah, he was there and everybody there had to die. You know, the coach should have been there, though, too. I agree. Yeah, I think that would have made more sense. Yeah, it would have made more sense if the coach was there. But Juliet and I were discussing while we were watching this, the trope that people like to kind of parade around, which is the black character always dies first, which is what happens in this movie. Yes. But it's like actually factually, I'm going to say conservatively, 85% of the time, that's not something that happens. And it's a trope that is kind of bandied about, but it's not in service of actually looking critically at these movies It's something that people say, well, because they're like, well, that's just a trope that happens. It happens a lot. Like tropes, there's a reason why people are critical of them. 
Yeah, I think that became a thing, again, in part because of, and we talked about this a lot, a lot of the parody films of the 2000s really amplified things about horror and maybe gave some ideas to non-horror fans or non, like, you know, people who hadn't really studied the genre. The flip side of that is that I feel like when we see the black character, especially in these 80s films, who is often very, very tokenized, you know, they are often the only character of color. And they are often, you know, portrayed in a way that is very, you know, stereotypical or archetypal and thus very problematic. It becomes very egregious. So even if it's not Even if like the phrasing of the trope is not exactly accurate, I think the spirit of it can tell us a lot about what was happening in these movies. So we have Digby. He is the only character of color that we see in this entire movie. He is in a service role. You know, he is a janitor slash caretaker, uh, very stereotypical for movies of that time that you would have your black characters in this sort of service role. And he is the first character who dies. And so it becomes really egregious. Like, you know, I keyed in on that right away. Like, oh, wow. Okay. The only black character who is a janitor is the first one to die. All right. You know, who? I think it's one of those things that because it's so obvious when it happens, especially like I'm sitting here looking through a 2023, you know, anti-racism lens, you know, it is so egregious that even if it doesn't happen as often as we think it does in movies of the past, it's so glaring when it happens that you just like, you're just like, whoa, hey, oh gosh, you know, and it gives us a lot to think about and a lot to reckon with. And I think that you know, horror is, I don't want to put it on the whole genre. I think that some filmmakers are doing a much better job in terms of, you know, casting and, you know, trying to not contribute to that trope or taking that trope and twisting it and playing with it and claiming it and doing something new with it. And and that's great. But who boy, we were not thinking about that in 1986. No. And the other thing is how many of these movies actually feature black characters in the first place? Exactly. You know, like tokenization aside, there are so many of these movies that are there's only white characters in the first place. Yep. So even if the whole trope of like black characters dying first, which people argue back and forth about yep. that. So like even leaving that aside, the fact that so many of these movies in the 80s were not featuring black characters in the first place. Right. Just... It it makes it even more obvious when the only character that you have in this movie who's black is a service worker and dies first. It makes it all that more like underscore of that trope. Yeah. You know, when we could look at 50 of these high school movies and maybe they don't feature any black people in them in the first place. Yeah. So or, you know, people of color in general. Yes. Yeah. Although we do have one Asian character in this one as well. But once again... There's no backstory. Right. She exists to die. Yes. So. Exactly. Now, do I think that that was intentional on the filmmaker's part? No. I don't necessarily think it was intentional. But just because it's not intentional doesn't mean that it's not harmful to 
the genre and this idea that there's a trope. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to really think critically. You can think critically about, you know, films of the past in many different ways. You know, I I have often said on this podcast that many things can be simultaneously true. Mm -hmm. You know, um, directors, producers, casting directors, film writ large was generally not thinking about issues of race and stereotyping in 1986, period. Mm -hmm. And that is true. It is also true that it's not okay to only have one black character in a service role who dies first. Like, that is also true, you know, and, and on and on and on and on. So I think when we look at films of the past, we have to, you know, kind of look at all of the things like yes this is a problem and it's not right and it highlights systemic issues about film and we can learn from that and we can also understand that the people that were making these films at this time were not um by and large people were not writ large embracing and had access to the kind of critical knowledge around race and gender and identity that we are examining now and, mm-hmm. and doing that work. So, yeah. and it doesn't give them a pass, but it also doesn't necessarily always mean that a movie shouldn't be watched or can't be looked at critically or can't mm-hmm. be enjoyed. Like, and we've talked about this over and over again. You know, I yeah. think you can acknowledge the flaws and the really cool things about movies of the past simultaneously and insist that movies that are being made now are doing better absolutely because i can't fix slaughter high 1986 right like we can talk about it but i can't fix it but we can insist and support filmmakers who are breaking those molds now yeah Yeah. and we can have conversations about slaughter high in 1986 Mm -hmm. you know and why yes the gore effects were super fun but hey that first death was uh not great in a lot of ways yeah yeah also the movie is a bit ableist yeah the, well I, I don't want to say a bit it is ableist there's yeah. no a bit about it they tell this story about marty throughout the course of the film where you know marty is disfigured he's burned he's burned with acid and also burned with fire one of his hands is messed up one side of his face is completely like melted and scarred and in the course of the film, they, you know, they're, they start talking about him. They've all but forgotten about him. Um, and But they start kind of reminiscing. And one of the characters says he's not fit for human company because of the way that his face looks. Disfigurement in horror is as old as horror as a genre itself. Absolutely. I mean, Phantom of the Opera is yes. probably the biggest and earliest example I can, can, I can think of right now. But... It's never been a stranger to being disfigured. Right. Physical disfigurement. And it's still something that happens in horror. Something terrible happens. A person is disfigured. They carry it with them. They end up taking revenge. Yeah. And just that that phrase, not fit for human company because a person is scarred. Like, Marty is not, he's still mobile. Right. He's still able to walk and talk and think. He's not, you know... He's not in a hospital permanently, at least right. yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he is, you know, he's still a person. He's still someone who's worthy of companionship and, you know, love and care, at least at this point. And I know I'm being flowery about it, but 
I couldn't believe that that phrase was being used. And I'm like, of course, these are, you know, late 20s people in Britain in the 80s, of course, are not being like super uh, gentle about this or, you know, sensitive to this. But for him to say not fit for human company, like it's so bad. His face is so bad that he can't even be around other people. Yeah. I was like, wow, okay, that's awful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, we're meant to understand that these people were assholes in high school and they don't seem to have gotten any better as adults. And, you know, I get that. But yeah, there is, I think that definitely underscores, you know, again, um, ableist ideas that are entrenched in society and media that we're still, again, grappling with today and trying to do better about and think critically about and really examine. But yeah, just like systemic racism, ableism is so entrenched in our society and culture that I think that that passing remark probably struck audiences a little different when this movie came out. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, again, these characters are supposed to be jerks, but I don't necessarily think that audiences that were seeing this movie when it first came out were thinking of it in the same critical way that we are now. So to kind of roll on to that, one of the things I asked you while we were making or while we were watching the movie is, do you think that the treatment of... so the the movie is essentially Marty gets has this terrible bullying thing happen to him. He gets given this funny joint, probably, which makes him cough. And then one of the other characters sabotages his experiment, whatever it is that he was doing, which yeah. is probably like nonsense. You know, yeah. not, it was a nonsense chemistry experiment. But then Marty has the nitric acid fall over on him from the shelf and also there's a fire and that's how he gets burned. But sabotage aside, the fire in and of itself is not the fault of the people that, you know, orchestrated whatever tampering that they did. Mm -hmm. So should Marty be taking it out on them? I know that that's kind of a silly thing because like, once again, ascribing logic to a murderer but it would be something else, I think, if they had, like, locked him into this lab uh-huh. and they couldn't escape the fire. And that's why he's kind of, you know, doing all of this. But kind of an interesting thought is, like, at this point, the bullying was over. The bullies were getting their punishment with the coach. You know, they're in the gym. They give him this cigarette. They tamper with his whatever. And then they leave. Yeah. And... What happens to Marty after that is an accident. Like, they didn't obviously mean for him to get burnt by acid and then explosions and all that. So, like, piecing the things together kind of was tough for me. For me to be like, okay, yeah, they deserve it because they did all of these things. Yeah, well, and, and I don't know how nuanced the filmmakers were thinking when making this movie, but I do think that when you have somebody who has been pretty mercilessly bullied, you know, that is such a weight and a burden that you then carry with you that I could see how it would eat at a person and even things that were not directly a result of the bullying could feel impacted by that bullying or you could 
start to make those connections in your head as a coping mechanism, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, that surely, you know, this horrible circumstance slash coincidence is related to this other horrible thing that I've been feeling, you know, or experiencing for, you know, I'm going to presume years that they've been bullying this person. Mm -hmm. So, I I don't know that the script was that nuanced, Mm -hmm. but I could make that connection just because I was like, well, if he's been dealing with these people for so long and this seems like one of the primary things in his day-to-day life is dealing with these people's torment, Mm -hmm. I could see how even a random thing that happened, you would then connect to this daily torment. That's fair. And obviously it changed his life. I mean, yeah. visually, yeah, people would not be able to not see what right. happened to him. So I guess it's true. But also for him to kill Digby, but not the coach, like yeah. not for him to summon also the coach back and you know, kill him too. Unless maybe he killed the coach some, somewhere else along the lines. Off screen. That's yeah. canon. That's yeah, canon. that's canon. We decided it. So here's another trope. It was all a dream. Yeah. <laughs> so how or did, was it? Yeah. So that that was the other thing is like, okay, we get to the dream portion. You know, we get to the point where Marty has killed Carol. She's the last, you know, the final girl. Yep. And he ends up killing her. He stabs her with a javelin, I guess, is what that is. Yes, it is. He kills her and then it's kind of the resolution he's like ah cool i'm i'm done it's me i'm marty i've i've done it all everything everybody's dead and then we see that he's actually just dreaming in hospital yeah um we don't know the extent of this hospitalization we don't really get any additional information about it we we do know that he is able to walk yeah um because he does later in the scene but how did you feel about the uh, the treatment of this and the fact that he went as far as to, in this dream, create a backstory for Carol and that she's like a, a nude model slash, you know, aspiring actress. Like he went as far as to make all of this stuff up and then it was all a dream. I go back and forth as to whether it was all a dream. And mm-hmm. I say that only because of some of like the wacky circumstances of 80s slashers. Okay, fair. So you could take it as it was all a dream and that the whole Carol backstory thing is that he's been fixated on these people for so long. Again, like sort of pushing blame of his circumstance onto these people who tormented them. And he has been thinking about and obsessing and presuming what their lives are like now because his life is, you know, I'm sure by virtue of, you know, this circumstance, not the life he envisioned for himself in the future. So you could go with that. Or if you want to go with the wacky 80s slasher kind of methodology for this, he sets up the elaborate murder scenario. He kills all the people and then is either found at the scene and is presumed to be a victim so this is me putting a lot of this on a lot of like my other slasher knowledge on here but he may have (laughs) been found at the scene of the murders and been presumed to be a victim of 
a serial killer who killed all these kids is then taken to the hospital and then that scenario plays out you know the whole face bandage yeah that's fair situation i had a feeling that's where you were going and you're right they don't come straight out and say one way or the other like they don't do the wavy lines no, you know to yeah. show that we're coming out of dream state and into yeah. like real life so it's very possible that either either way I took it as like it was all a dream and he all yeah. you know he created all of it but you're very right it could be either way and yeah. it's it's effective I don't want to say I'm always disappointed at like dream sequences you know when it's like it was all a dream yeah because it does feel sometimes like a little bit of a cop out you know like oh we weren't sure how else to resolve this so it was all made up yeah and I'm like okay well it's a great get out of jail free card it is to, to kind of pull pull the e-brake on that like skirt okay yeah. it, where actually none of that happened in real life yeah but I I can see where you're coming from too where like all that stuff did happen and he just so happened to mi- wind up in a hospital yeah yeah and I'm basing that off many other slashers. That's fair. That's where that fair. happens, where the, you know, like the final girl wakes up in the hospital and like looks over to the window in the next room and it's the killer. And they're like, we found this. We've been able to ID all the victims of the serial killer, but we can't ID this one. And she's like, ah, it's him. Yeah. And sometimes it just fades to black and we have to wait for the sequel, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I do wonder if Christopher Nolan got the idea for the dark knight where the joker is in the nurse costume and that's how he's able to oh from like, this yeah from this maybe because at the very end uh yeah. marty's in like a nurse costume and and he uses that so that he can uh he can kind of trick the doctor and then stab him in the eyeball with a giant yeah. hypodermic needle because it's it's very similar and the reason why i say that is because in this movie you know he's like wearing the little pillbox hat and he's uh-huh. got like the nursing well, in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, the the Joker is also wearing that. None of the other nurses look like that. Like now nurses don't look like that. Yeah. So Oh, that's headcanon for me. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe it was just inspiration and that's how. Yeah. And I don't know. This that also could happen in other movies, maybe more iconic movies I just don't know about. But in my head I'm like, "Oh, that seems like inspiration, like direct yeah. inspiration." Yeah. Especially because also the Joker is another example of a character that has a disfigured face. Yes. And yeah. So I don't know. Christopher Nolan, if you're out there, let us know. Please let us know. Sorry we didn't see Oppenheimer, but let us know. We saw that TikTok. (laughs) The TikTok was enough. The 30 second TikTok. (laughs) We don't need. We don't need to spend the three hours. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry, Christopher Nolan. We don't have time. Yeah. We're watching Slaughter High. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, I do want to give the movie props, though. Just like you said earlier when we were watching it, it's very lo-fi, very gritty. Yeah. There are parts where you're like, wow, they really didn't have the white balancing down because, like, they're filming next to windows. So, like, the, the characters are too dark. Yeah. Like, they are they look just like shadows because you can't see. I love it. Funny. It's great. It feels like a movie from the 80s, and I enjoy that. The Daily Grindhouse describe the aesthetic of this film as quote gothic porno which i love perfect yeah that's perfect it's a it's a perfect description yeah so what are we talking about next time juliet 
Oh, next time. We've gone back and forth about what to do next time. So many we, times. We have made a list, checked it twice, <laughs> crossed things off, added things. And then we finally decided, you know what? Let's not do all of these like fancy intellectual things that we had deigned to do <laughs> for our next episode. <laughs> Screw it. We're watching Queen of the Damned. Yes. <laughs> Hell yes. We both deserve some early 2000s cheese, some Stuart Townsend and Aaliyah worship cheese. Yes. Finally, some Anne Rice in our podcast. We have, have spoken about her work so many times on this podcast, but we've never covered anything based on her work. So this is our moment. <laughs> this is the perfect moment, too, because for as much as Interview of the Vampire has changed my literary life, yeah, I love the movie so much, but... Queen of the Damned informed my teenage and high school years so much more intensely than Interview with the Vampire did. And love it or not, it still does today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I still find myself listening to the soundtrack. So I am very excited to rewatch it in my 32, almost 33-year-old body and just like let it happen to me. Because I remember watching this for the first time when I was like 13 or 14 and being like, my life will never be the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like mind blown. So yeah. very excited to rewatch it. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. You can support this podcast and hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.